The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being made of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Parker. Appreciate it. So, if you think about Christianity and what we're doing, some of us may have been so far entrenched into church and following Jesus that we might forget how backwards it really is. I remember um, when I was in high school and uh, for me football was everything. I grew up in Texas, it was a big deal. Here we were in our pep rally. I was a senior that year. It was kind of the big thing. Uh, We were, you know, possibly picked to, you know, go to state, maybe win state football championship, go far in the playoffs. And I remember being dressed up and, and everything, uh, ready for the pep rally. Everybody's there. We had a, a gym he, packed out. I mean, for our pep rallies, everybody's there. At the whole school, but then all these, all the community would come. It's just massive. Well, I got to, being a senior, I got to run out kind of first a lot in the, in the pep rally. And here I am, I'm feeling really good. Uh, I, I'm thinking, man, I, I'm, you know, starting, I'm doing all these things. This is kind of where I find a lot of my uh, power, identity, uh, success. You know, this was kind of a place and here's everybody watching. They're cheering us. And I get to be one of the first people to run behind the flag bearer out in the middle of the uh, entire uh, place. And I'm running out. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm in a good spot. I got my jeans, got my shirt on, my boots, you know, I'm dressed like a normal Texan would running behind the flag bearer who was a little shorter in stature. And all of a sudden I feel my foot just go like this. Well, the flag bearer was carrying an enormous flag, probably about 10 times the size. I catch the edge of it, fly underneath. The flag, he jerks him back. The flag falls on me mid-court. And literally the team doesn't stop. They just go over me. So... 
I get start getting kicked. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm confused. I can't see because there's this flag on me. I pop up and I'm kind of doing this and I run over to my seat and I'm thinking, gosh, please, I, I know that everyone in the entire community just saw what happened to me. But, th- but, but that is a perfect picture and feeling that I get when I think about humility. It's this place where I think I'm so strong. I got position. I've got influence. And I feel like I can run out and show it to everybody. I, I love to, to, to show it. And yet, it all comes crashing down. And that's just one of many moments. The irony is, you know, of this passage that we're even looking at today, uh, it is one that's interesting because it is pointing at quite the opposite. It, my, my ring actually has, on the inside of my ring, I actually have these verses, not the whole written, but the actual Philippians 2, 1 through uh, 2 or 3. And what an irony. To have it on my wedding ring and yet to see how not humble I am in marriage. And maybe that's what I was thinking when I first put it on there. I doubt it. I thought, I'm going to be so humble, probably, right? But what do I see is the opposite. You know, what, what, if, what if we as a, as a people, as Christians, that people that say, follow Jesus, what would it be like to actually show everyone around us that the most powerful thing in the world, this thing we call the gospel, actually doesn't come from the pedestal we have, the power we hold, the success we have, the way we tout ourselves, but the complete opposite. I mean, wouldn't it just change everything? I mean, the irony even of this ver- these verses is that Paul is writing from prison. He's writing of power and strength and unity, but he's writing from prison. It's a humble place. And and, and for him to say these words, have this mind among you, to talk about humility in the Roman world at all was not a heralded virtue. It actually meant if you you were crushed, you were subservient, it was not a virtue that you wanted. And yet this is... Let me, I'll even start here. This is our fastball as Christians. Is that we follow a savior who puts himself in a position that is so low that none of us can even go below it. And that's the gospel. You see how backwards this is? If you're here this morning and maybe you're coming back to church or maybe you've been kind of burned or cynical of it because you've seen the opposite actually. You've seen Jesus and the people that actually follow Jesus kind of tout themselves, say it, ha- it has to do with my pedestal. It has to do with how successful I am. Let's be reminded this morning that this is a very opposite view. <laughs> it's a very opposite view, that our entire worship this morning centers around this thing, humility. Everything we are doing this morning, everything, humility. St. Augustine, who is one of my favorite theologians, said this. He said, 
what are, somebody asked him, what are the central principles of the Christian life? He said, the first one is this, humility. He said, the second one is humility. He said, the third one is humility. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the two parts that Paul actually writes in this letter. He, when he's writing in this part in his letter, he kind of describes two parts. He describes the practice of humility, and he describes the person of humility. So the practice and person of humility And he begins with this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of accord and of one mind. He keeps talking about this one mind. And he keeps talking about unity. But here's the problem. This is what he's trying to get at. It's the fact that he is saying there is disunity. There is a problem. And they need to have a different mind when they approach it. You need to have a different mindset of this. Because for them, you would think writing this, and especially this is one of the most encouraging letters, by the way, to churches. And most of us would probably think, yeah, there's a lot of disunity in churches. And we read with just such rose-colored glasses about the churches in the New Testament. But he's saying right here, there is disunity. There's friction, division. And that humility is what's going to bring it together. That in order to make sense of how to be a church that comes together, it's not zeal. That's what we herald in our culture. We see somebody who's zealous about something and can promote something big and we find them to be a leader. But this is actually saying the opposite. Saying if you want people to stick together, if you want people to actually come together through discord, through problems, through struggles, it doesn't come through someone just being right and someone being wrong. It comes through humility. It comes through a mind that has to submit itself. And this was very different to them on that level. I mean, as I was reading historians on this, listen to what they said about humility, to discuss humility in this time period. Humility before the gods, of course, was appropriate. Because think about this, in a Roman culture, to have humility before the gods, little g, s, was appropriate, primarily because they could kill you. Humility was advisable before emperors for the same reason. But humility before an equal or lesser was morally suspect. It upset the assumed equation. Merit demanded honor. Thus, honor was the proof of merit. Avoiding honor implied a diminishment of merit. It was shameful. And doesn't that sound, that may have been the Roman culture, doesn't it sound so much of like us? Listen to this from the Harvard Business Review. Listen to this. The triumph, this is the article named Triumph of Humility and Fierce Resolve. Harvard Business Review. Boards of directors typically believe that transforming a company from good to great requires an extreme personality or egocentric chief to lead the corporate charge. Think of these certain people he lists out in several. But that's not the case, says the author and leadership expert. The essential ingredient for taking a company to greatness is having a level five leader. And a level five leader is this, an executive in whom extreme personal humility blends with paradoxically with intense professional will. He says in this article that he paints a compelling and counterintuitive portrait of the skills and personality traits necessary for effective leadership. And the first one on that list, the number one thing is humility. 
Why are they writing articles about this? Because it's counterintuitive. As much as it was in Rome, it is now. To have humility means to put yourself in a position where those, maybe if they're above you, you kind of can cower down, but that's not even humility. It is to submit yourself to see others, count them better than yourself. It's instead of seeing, this is the deal with it. It's so interesting with us and our work and our, and our lives. We take ourselves so seriously. I know I do. I just saw it this morning. I just saw a moment this morning, a glimpse of that, even as church was starting, of how I was taking myself so seriously and I just thought, thank you God for teeing me up for that one. Where I think I'm this person or in this place. See, humility makes you see the real you. And it makes you rest. I don't care where you are in your jobs, your business. You may not even have one at this moment. But isn't it interesting how much we take ourselves so seriously that we have to have something that gives us a claim. Here's a a little litmus test. How easily angered are you by what people say around you? How easily angered are you by what people maybe infringe upon you, maybe your rights, maybe your character? Are you easily defensive? Are you quick to promote yourself or keep yourself in a specific character kind of look? Are you okay seeing that you're really not all that? And I say this to you as your pastor, it is hard. Humility is not something we incur, and we, we talk about it as a, as, a, as a good virtue, but we don't really hold it as that. Look at even verse three. Listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you know what, the way we do that in our culture, especially in Nashville where everybody says, it's so, people are so nice here. We may treat others as better. It doesn't mean we're counting them as better. In our culture, particularly Southern culture can do this. We can be hospitable. We can maybe be kind to others with a threshold. But does that mean we're actually counting them as better than ourselves? Are we actually putting them in that position? I mean, here's what's interesting. The language of selfish ambition is this. It's talking about daily laborers who were working by unfair means. In other words, they were having all these, they were gaining position referring to like party squabbles. And, and, And the word conceit following that was a word that was the opposite of what was normally said. It meant empty glory. The word glory usually meant full, like a rain cloud. We've seen a lot of them lately that come and go. A rain cloud is about to burst with rain, it's, that's what glory typically means. Empty glory is just nothing there. It's like a shell, hollow. See, humility gives you weight. It gives you significance. But for us, we think, what, anything else I can promote myself with will give me weight, give me strength. And I think the way that we do it in our culture is very subservient. See, in the, in the Roman culture, You should read some of the things that they would say. That you would promote yourself by writing all these great things. You would literally list your achievements. And for us, in our culture, we might read that and go, oh, that's so, they're bragging so much. But what do we do? 
Ours is the humble brag, right? The humble brag. Jane Austen even uses this in her work, Pride and Prejudice, when Mr. Darcy says this. He says, nothing is more deceitful than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion and sometimes an indirect boast. Here's a a more contemporary version. There's an article in The Atlantic written about the humble brag, right? And it even calls it the science of the humble brag. And it says, follows up, it doesn't work. Listen to what they say. If you want to brag, just brag. Even better, just complain. Praise and sympathy They are two of life's essentials, the oxygen and carbon dioxide of social interaction. The first is most directly elicited by bragging and the second by complaining. But the humble brag is this, I'm exhausted from Memorial Day weekend. It's so hard to get out to Nantucket. I sit at the the center of these um, competing needs and it's the boast in the sheepish clothing, right? Uh, dressing up these kind of things. And it drives the goal to try and get yourself into a position where people see you in great light. That's how we typically do it. We've gotten savvy. We typically put ourselves out there. We can do it whether it's in an Instagram post, whether it's in a conversation. Isn't it often when we have conversations with people that we try and fit in either a question to them or something that puts us in a good light with them? But why do we need that? Why? It's because we have this, this desire for empty glory. We have desire for glory, but it's a, a rain cloud that never rains. It just looks dark and heavy and promotes itself, but never shows anything. That is the picture of it. And here's what's interesting about it. We love to treat ourselves well and then think that's how we treat others well. But we ourselves don't know what it's like to be counted significant. So we try and make ourselves significant. And that diminishes everyone else, right? When we're trying to promote our significance, it comes in complete contradiction to everyone else's. But what if this is the case? What if both interests were true? Here's what's interesting what he says in verse four. He says, let you look not only your own interests, but the interests of others. Now notice this. He's not saying, Paul isn't writing to them, you need to get rid of your interests. It's all about the other person. Humility has an intense focus, not on making you less and not on making someone else more or the reverse. It's making you both matter. I will tell you, I serve on a committee in our presbytery called the Shepherding Committee. And some of you know this. And it is an intense work. All we do and what we've been, we're seen as is we are to help reconcile broken churches and relationships. I've been on this committee for I think 10 plus years now. And I will tell you, it has kept me intensely sober with the fact that every time I get in a room with a church, a pastor, an elder, uh, whatever, wives of elders, I mean like people in the room where they are just, it is falling apart. The hardest thing that ever happens in that room is that everyone's interests matter. And the times when it doesn't reconcile is when people leave those doors and they do not see this very thing. 
It is like what C.S. Lewis said beautifully. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can. And I think, tell him the first step is to realize that one, you are proud. If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. We have to admit that. Humility isn't being quiet. It can involve that. It doesn't mean you have a humble personality or not. It just means you may internally be conceited or externally. And we manifest it in every way. The practice of humility, he is trying to mine out. How does a church come together? How does a church feel like an actual family that works through hard things? It has to come through humility. Now, we could herald this as a virtue. We could say this is the new virtue for the church, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. What he says is there has to be a person of humility. This is what I think is interesting about this. The practice of humility comes first. And what does he do? He grounds it in the person of humility. And for our songwriters out there and those who love music, this is actually an ancient hymn that he draws from. It's an ancient poem or, or, or song that was actually taken and placed in here that a lot of people thought to talk about the person of Jesus. Look, here's the one question I have, and I'll ask it for you. There are a lot of humble people in history. Why in the world is Jesus any different? You ever thought about this? If you really want to know the, why is what we're doing in worship humble, is it just a virtue or does it surround something more? Is Jesus more than just any other figure through history who has actually humbled themselves? And why? Because here's, and I'll tell you this, it's uniquely different because this through humility changed the world. Transformed the world. It, 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 was, it was on a person who is admired, if you think about this, and I'll go back to it, our fastball as people who say we follow Jesus is that we follow a man who had a ministry that was only within maybe a few hundred miles. His disciples were always confused. He was crucified on a cross when at that time was ridiculous. And we are in America miles away from where he lived and yet it is impacting us. Why is that? Is it because he was so strong? Is it because he was so powerful? Bertrand Russell even said it this way. He said, listen, he said, envy consists in seeing things never in themselves, but only in their relations. If you desire glory, you may envy Napoleon. But listen to this. Napoleon envied Caesar. Caesar envied Alexander. And Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. The difference is that the person of humility had to come in flesh to be a real, not just example, but real one who took on our pride as well. Look at the verses that he does. This is, a, this is what's called in poetry, and some of you would love this, a chiasm. In other words, it goes down before it goes up. It says that Jesus didn't grasp for power. Look at this. It begins with this. Though he was, in verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, the thing to be grasped. Grasp is a word that's usually used for those who rob. In the, in the Greek world, it was those who would come in and rob a home. 
But here's the point. Jesus had the power and yet he didn't grasp for it. He didn't go after it. Some of the most powerful things I'm learning right now as someone who's a parent and someone who's a friend and someone who's a husband is how I grasp at power to prove who, my worth. The most powerful things that change the way that I approach even my children is this. When I know I don't have to prove to them that I'm their dad. Hey, I'm your dad, you better do this. But when I talk to them and keep that, it, it's a total different thing. True power doesn't have to exude it. True power is like when I'm wrestling with my three-year-old and he thinks he has the upper hand. And yet I could, what, slam him, right? <laughs> but he's on me, he's like, ah! And I fall to the ground and he thinks he's got me. But true power is harnessing that, knowing what it is. Jesus submits it. There's an interesting New York Times article on this. It's called the, the Quiet Power of Humility, where the man begins the whole article, and he may be a Christian, I'm not sure, but he begins the whole article by asking one of his atheist friends, somebody, one of his friends who says, I don't really care for Christianity, this actual question. He says, he says what, what do you think Christians could give to public life? Like, what do you think Christians could actually provide for the public life? What do they give? And the one answer this, this man gave to his friend, he said, humility. Think about Jesus and how many times he was offered power by Satan. Satan offers him power of the world. Those who are following Jesus offered him political power. Take up the crown. Take it for us. His disciples said, hey, Jesus, when are you going to, you know, take up the throne so we can be at your right and left hand? They thought, this kind of power, we're ready. We're ready for it. But what does Jesus do every single time? He denies it. My question to you is, do we worship a Savior that determines how we understand how power is grasped? If Jesus is willing to deny that, to not grasp it, he goes lower than us. He goes below us. We typically think that we need to grasp political power that we need to grasp social power. Think of the ways that you try and grasp social power, vocational power in a city. Gosh, there's so many major industries here competing for that. Political power, are we not in such a huge, look, me even bringing that up, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's saying political stuff in here. We've got to get over that. We need to start thinking with a different mindset of who Jesus is as king more than anybody else. And that will help us answer those questions. But is he the one who didn't grasp at that power, though he held it all? Though it says he could have called a legion of angels down to just wipe out everybody, and yet he doesn't. He submits his will. And it even says further, if that's not enough, it says he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, a position of a, he was a teacher, he was the master, and yet he began washing their feet. 
This is actually taken from the Old Testament in Isaiah 52 and 53, where it's called the suffering servant. If you want a passage to read for yourself as kind of a devotional past this, write that down and look it up in your phone or in a Bible. Isaiah 52 and 53, this is the description of the Savior who would come. And if you read it, it says he had no form that anybody would look on him. He had no beauty that people would be attracted to him. It actually says these words, no beauty. All the things that we hold up in order for us to be significant and recognized. And yet Jesus goes the opposite direction. If, if you don't grasp that, if you don't sit on that and marinate in the fact that that's what Christianity is about, that we're actually here this morning. Look, the chapel's beautiful. We may all dress well. But we need to understand that our Savior goes the opposite direction. And it's okay for us to meet here. It's okay for us to dress the way we do. It's okay for us to enjoy nice things. But we need to remember something. He goes the opposite. He actually has to go below us in order to raise us up. It, look, the only reason it says that his name, at the name of every, uh, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. How does he make his name great? Not by saying, I'm your teacher, I'm your master. He actually says the opposite. And the disciples are confused. They don't even know what to do with it because he set aside his glory to raise them up and glory, and to raise us up. There was a, a, a beautiful reception in England honoring a musician, Sir Robert Mayer, on his 100th birthday. And uh, elderly British socialite, Lady Diana Cooper, fell into a conversation with a friendly woman who seemed to know her really well. And Lady Diana's eyesight was really failing her, and she couldn't really see uh, who it was up close even and prevented her and yet she kind of peered and saw these beautiful diamonds necklace and looked and really saw her face and realized she was talking to Queen Elizabeth herself and she said Queen I I'm so sorry especially in royal court as such to be so close she needed to have her distance and she said, I'm so sorry, I didn't recognize you without your crown. And, and the queen said back so quietly, it was so much Sir Robert's evening that I set my crown aside so he could have glory. Look, that is the reality of our king. He has all the glory, all the power, and yet he makes himself a servant. He puts himself in a position not only to serve you at his table, to serve himself to you at his table. He allows himself to be crushed. And so it finishes even with this. If it's not enough to even be a servant, to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you realize that Jesus was sentenced wrongly, falsely accused? And yet he took it, he absorbed it. How many of us, day after day, not even going to our death, but maybe our social death, are wrongly accused and yet rise up to defend ourselves? That is such a known bone in my body, and yet the one I worship, who held way more power than me, 
who was accused of all sorts of things he wasn't, denied by his friends, accused by all his enemies, it says that he kept his mouth shut. That is so humbling to me. And he didn't just keep it shut, he kept it shut even on the cross. And what does he say? The opposite of what I want to it said. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He goes lower than anything. The cross itself was, was a tool of death that showed you are an enemy of the state. You are a problem, a menace. He took up dishonor, my friends, dishonor to the whole world. And yet that's how he's exalted. Does that make sense to you? If you're here and maybe you're seeing Christianity for the first time or hearing this, do you see the opposite? That's why it's called a chiasm in poetry and music in this because it goes down in order to go up. The only way up was for him to do that, was to take it up in dishonor. Because there was a, a news article some time ago about a pastor who was pulled over for a DUI. This is a pastor in uh, Charlotte. And another pastor um, <clears throat> that I know um, but wrote this article in the op-ed piece to this pastor and to the whole thing. I want to read it to you. It says, as a fellow pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, I want to make sure that Reverend Shelton Sanford, whom I do not know is the only, not the only ordained man whose name is listed here as a big sinner. This could have been me. This could have been any one of us. Give me the right opportunity, background, and occasion, and there is no sin which I would not commit. This is a moment for the church to show and extend the grace of Jesus in ways that no other religion can offer. Every other religion says, be good, be loved, and the gospel declares that it is the wretched, sinful, careless, and even DUI-getting preachers who Jesus came to live and die for. It is my prayer and hope that this church in Rock Hill may find a great opportunity for grace in this moment. The only safe prophet, the only safe prophet is Jesus, not Shelton. Jesus will never fail, and he loves sinners, even preachers. Shelton, my brother, God's grace is sufficient. Others may be ashamed of you, but the Father slaughters fattened calves for prodigal preachers too. And I am not ashamed to call you a fellow minister and brother of, or Christian because Jesus is not ashamed of me. This table is the fact that we have a Savior that saves all of us in that way. This is a savior who, this is so opposite. Please feel, experience that when you let this wine and juice touch your lips and the bread and be ingested that you, you realize that this is a table of humility. What, what other thing in all of history describes the most powerful person in the entire world that does this, none, even 
to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that when you come to this table, you profess not your name, it's not my name is great, whose name is great, because he gives you his body and blood, it is he that is exalted. We can come to this table because we're fellow sinners, like Shelton. Can you imagine all of us, not just in a pep rally, but in the paper with our name and our sin listed. And yet this God does exactly that. He puts himself on a cross, the most shameful place that you could be in that entire Roman world for all the world to see in the first century and even now in the 21st century so that you could know a servant who identifies with your disgusting sin that you see as so bad and writes to you in his letter that I'm not ashamed of you. You are mine. Let's stand.